And, and so we end up having to dance around the topic yeah. too often. And and the reason that we're dancing is because someone white in the room is going to be upset. They're going to be offended. They're going to shut down. Uh, and they're going to walk away from the table. And so that that's the that's the term white fragility, right? So that there's there's a fragileness to someone who may be white. Welcome to the Nonpartisan Evangelical. I'm Paul Swearingen, the Nonpartisan Evangelical on the show. That's the name. And uh, joining me today is our guest, Phil Skye, who is the co-pastor of OnRamps Community Church here in Fresno, California, where we do the show. And also a guy that's just been involved in neighborhood revitalization in Fresno for a number of years, moved into one of the poorer communities in Fresno, and so, Phil, appreciate you joining us and uh, just love having you on and getting a chance to talk to you. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate being here. T- tell us a little bit about that history of, as I said, you're sort of involved in neighborhood revitalization. You've done that as a as a career in working with the city of Fresno here and done it as just as a part of your humanity, I think, of wanting to be part of seeing neighborhoods revitalized in Fresno. How did that come about in your in your life? It's a great question, and, and you kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, it doesn't just sort of—it's uh, not something you go study necessarily. It's not um, something you wake up in the middle of the night dreaming about, you know, and have this epiphany at 48 that you decide you're going to start doing. It's—it is something that, uh, for me at least, it started, you know, much earlier. I mean, I—I—and it really has to do with, I think, proximity. Okay. And so, so for me, I grew up in. Um, North Fresno, Northwest Fresno, primarily, and then in junior high school, I went to Computech. Uh, and Computech is in Southwest Fresno, and it was there that I then, you know, went on to Edison High School. And I would just say that that really my um, my universe uh, grew, and, <laughs> and, and in a really critical way that addressed you know bias, uh, prejudice uh, that just couldn't help but um, connect stories uh, of people who were different than me uh, to my own story, yeah. and and I began to see place. I really hadn't seen place prior to my time at Edison High School. I really hadn't seen neighborhoods. I just kind of knew where I grew up, and I knew how to get to my best friend's house on my bicycle, you know. Yeah. Um, but but I began to see place in a different way, and I saw disparity and and you know the the my friend that I you know was in class with lived around the corner from Edison. Um, and going to their home for their 16th birthday party was very different than uh, my home or my uh, friend's home who lived in Northwest Fresno for their 16th birthday party. Mm-hmm. So just I became very intensely aware of disparity, and I just chose to not distance myself from that disparity from that point forward. Mm-hmm. So even when we have not always lived uh, in a high poverty neighborhood, when we lived in Northeast Fresno, we still went to church in Southwest Fresno, right? We still stayed connected, and so just kept proximity um, really a an embedded part of our lives. That's interesting. Let me set some context. We do have people that listen around the country, and so in Fresno, 
Uh, it, it is a, a fairly significantly racially segregated town by proximity. I, I love that word. And and as a sprawl town, we started a, around a core that we would call our downtown, and we've we've sprawled significantly north of there. And so in Fresno, the northern neighborhoods are generally your more affluent. And Southwest Fresno, which is where Edison High School is, that you noted, is generally considered uh, more of an area where more of our people of color would live and uh, our African American populations. And Computech and, and Edison are a school uh, in the Fresno Unified School District. They're a gifted and talented educational program where a lot of students from all around the city end up going to school in Southwest Fresno. And 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 get that proximity and our own son went down there for a year or so and so you were seeing other areas of town that that you didn't know and hanging out with people of color which is which you get a little less of that diversity in other parts of town and it had that impact on you and and i i should give a context i guess since it's audio you are caucasian your your wife is african-american and so you have sort of a racially mixed family and so all of that has sort of fed into the context of where you are yeah absolutely absolutely i you know i see what i see and i don't see what i don't see um and my wife is incredible and she grew up in southwest fresno and so I've spent an incredible amount of time in a part of the city that I've never lived in uh, and continue to do so. And so when I, when we talk about any topic, uh, my wife's perspective uh, is so critical because I just am aware that, um, that I still see this world and see our city uh, through the lens of a you know, white middle-aged man. And yeah. so it, it's, it's I, my ears... I think uh, grow larger when my wife is talking for many good reasons, you know. Uh, and uh, uh, God's voice sounds a lot like our wives it's sometimes. True. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But uh, but her her perspective is is so uh, is so acute, and and I and I desperately need to listen when she talks. And um, so yes, my my so yeah. Not only do I have this experience, sort of just. Uh, immersing myself uh, in not just Southwest Fresno, I mean, that's sort of the beginning of the story for me, but now in really all of South Fresno and neighborhoods in, in, in Southeast and, and Central and, and Southwest. Um, but but every day I am learning from my wife. Yeah, that's a, that's fascinating. And I, I think for, for my wife and I, we, we just have felt compelled in the last couple of years to, to really lean into to what the racial divides in our country have meant what the history of racism has meant and even just the history of slavery itself. And it, it, it seems as we lean into that, first off, we're becoming incredibly embarrassed by what we haven't known and what we've lived in for a long time, which is part of the process of it all. But I'm becoming really aware that either, how do I say this, the, the white evangelical church in some ways is completely unaware of maybe the voice of someone like your wife would have to share about how things impact her and impact uh, maybe some of our minority communities. But but sometimes I feel like we, we don't want to know and we get a little defensive if it starts to come to us. So how, how, I know you're dealing with that a lot and dealing with a lot of churches from a lot of different populations in town. And, and how do you find when you start talking about racially tinged issues with maybe people who are from less diverse communities, how, what, what does that reaction look like? 
Well, it's sensitive. It's a sensitive topic, no question about it. And sensitive for everybody. But but I will tell you that uh, a lot of uh, times you will hear communities of color talk about um, it, the, the phrase or the term would be you know white fragility. Fragility. Okay. Mm-hmm. And 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 so when I say in response to your question about you know how do people respond, and I'm saying well it's a sensitive topic. Yeah. That that is partially the problem right is it why is it so sensitive because and so we end up having to dance around the topic yeah. too often and 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 the reason that we're dancing is because someone white in the room is going to be upset they're going to be offended they're going to shut down and they're going to walk away from the table and so that that's the that's the term white fragility right is that mm-hmm. there's 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 a fragileness um to you know someone who may be white. So even as I say those words, even as I respond to your question, right, someone's listening to this and is already frustrated with yeah, me, yeah, right, yeah. for even bringing up the topic and even even suggesting that there is fragility and suggesting that the fragility is in some way tied to someone's uh, race. Yeah. So it, 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 you know, even as, uh, you know, one of your listeners is, 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 you know, responding or reacting to my response itself, it, it's tough. Um, and so we have to, I think... Approach the topic and approach any subject matter that is has been influenced or con- or continues to be influenced by racial dynamics in a way that does not ultimately say to the person sitting across from the table from you that uh, you are at fault and you are a bad person. It, we need to just say, look, let's. We have to recognize the way in which race has influenced our city. Um, and and then let us together all buy in and invest in a future, a preferred future for this city that all of us can embrace. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Because I, I think we, we just have to listen to one another. And when, say, violence breaks out around an issue, uh, a, a Watts riot, you know, people don't throw bricks through windows because they just like to do it. Now, maybe there are some that that take the opportunity and take it too far. But ultimately, I think where we've got to get to is like, okay, there's somebody that matters because they're an American citizen just like me or a human being just like me that matters to God that I at least need to try to hear what they're saying. And and it seems like we've gotten to a place where it's very difficult for us to to listen to what one another is saying because of that fragility a little bit. Yeah, that's right. And so in, in the neighborhood realization sort of world, we would use this um, phrase, you know, uh, you don't have to move to live in a better neighborhood. So, I mean, let's just go with that, yeah. right? So you don't have to move to live in a better neighborhood. Let's apply that statement to every resident in every neighborhood in our city. We say it loudly to everyone. You don't have to move to live in a better neighborhood. That's good. So what does that mean? It means to someone who lives in a relatively affluent, um, aesthetically really attractive neighborhood, that if you begin to see your neighborhood decline, you don't have to move in order for your neighborhood to be better, right? Mm -hmm. So what we're all saying as a community is that we will invest in your neighborhood to prevent it from declining. You don't have to move. And... Let's also apply that statement to someone who lives in another neighborhood in our city that maybe is not as aesthetically uh, attractive, maybe actually has declined. And may we all commit to that in the same way and say, if you want to live in a better neighborhood, 
you also don't have to move. We will make your neighborhood better and we will do it together. We will listen to the vision of the community. We will adopt the principles and the values of that neighborhood. And we will invest to ensure that if you want to live in a better neighborhood, it does not mean relocation for you. You can stay and your neighborhood will just be better. And we'll just keep making that commitment to one another. Yeah. From your perspective with your family and, and the, the church that you pastor is a, is a very racially mixed church, has recent events, and I guess I, I almost hesitate to go this direction, but the, you know, the election of President Trump, and, and it seems like uh, racial issues have certainly come to the surface more that maybe some of us thought those were kind of behind us in a little way. For our minority communities, are they feeling that um, something has come up in, in our society that's, that's painful for them in sort of maybe a new way in the last few years? Um, I think that as I listen to, you know, our neighbors and members in our congregation, uh, what I have heard over the last five or so years is that um, it is not a new way in which racial tensions have risen. Uh, it's just the latest emergence or expression. Uh, these racial elements or dynamics are something that people of color, generally speaking, uh, what I understand is that, is that the communities of color always feel yeah. every day they wake up. And I know that that statement, again, uh, for uh, for maybe some of your white listeners would say, I don't, I don't get that. It feels like a, an overstatement to me. And, and I think we just need to stop and say, no, it's not an overstatement. It is true that if you are a person of color and you wake up today that you will feel someone today will make you aware that you are not white. Mm. In some way, that will occur for you today. And it will occur again tomorrow. And so, you know, one of the ways in which, again, from a faith perspective that we, you know, are seeking to address that is, is again, is to lean into a theology of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And uh, it's often been said, uh, maybe a bit, you know, casually, but uh, in the kingdom, in heaven, if you will, uh, there, there, there are no um, disparate zip codes, you know? I mean, it doesn't matter which zip code you live in in heaven. Mm -hmm. uh, the parks are equal, right? The, um, you know, the water is the same quality. Uh, there's not lead in this water on this side of heaven and no lead in the other. I mean, so it's just, so we have to have a, a robust theology of the kingdom and then we have to pursue it on earth as it is in heaven. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, we have a, a project that we've worked on together called Vision 22 of mixing some of the churches from the different neighborhoods together. And, and one of the, the lessons we have in the curriculum on that I like to talk about, don't live in a small town. I like your thing about your, your neighborhood, but uh and it was a, from a conversation that I had with somebody that lives on the north end of Fresno. And he was telling me, you know, man, Fresno's such a great town. We're, we're, I tell people everywhere I go, we're a small town. We all take care of each other and things are just great. And and I looked at him and said, no, actually, Fresno's not a small town. It's it's a, the fifth largest city in the largest, most populous state in the country. There's over 500,000 people. And maybe as many as 350,000 of those people don't have a life quite the same as yours. 
And so I do think we, we've got to break out of that small town mentality that as long as I'm okay and my circle is okay, we're okay. Um, when, when, when I see Jeremiah 29, 7, pray for the welfare of your city, if we're not willing to listen to the pain of all our neighbors in our city and, and want peace for, and justice for everybody in our city, then we're not carrying out the kingdom principle. You know, that, the, that someone would say, and this is just illustrative, right? That if someone said, our community is great, we all take care of each other, so on and so on. It just tells you, I think, it's very revealing that um, you know, whoever expresses that clearly does not see people of color in this city. Like they've, I think that they have only seen their community, um, you know, over the last 70 years. And they are totally unaware that our community, that our community, now let me use the word city, right? That our city has evolved, it has changed, it has grown, um, and that more than half of our city are, are people of color. And it, I think it, it is a very myopic view to say, you know, our community takes care. I don't think that you are thinking of the whole city when you mm. say that. You're thinking of a very specific community within this city, right. and it is not the entire city. And so you already, I think, the invitation would be to see the whole city um, before we advance the conversation any further. How do we have that conversation? I, 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 I had this conversation with a group and a, a wonderful, wonderful man, Christian man who I'm sure loves his family, loves his neighbors around him starts to tell me i'm so sick of hearing about this and and he he actually says this statement we've given those people so much money and nothing good has come of it i mean this is you know that is a a perspective and i think there's politics and and long term i, I don't you know how do how do you have that conversation when you get that reaction and how do we get people past that moment to see something more? Well, I think one, I mean, and I don't say this disparagingly, I really don't, I really don't. But um, there is a, a pearls before swine kind of you yeah. know, element here, right? Where you just kind of say, look, I, maybe I you recognize can't that, have that conversation. Yeah, maybe you're not going to ever, yeah. you know, sort of be open. And, and I can, and I need to accept that. And so yeah. I'm okay with that. Um, but, but there are a number of people, a very large group of people in this city um, that are open. And, you know, over, you know, the last 20 years or so, I mean, the, the only way that I know to have that conversation is experientially. It, it may start around coffee in, in, in a coffee shop. That's okay. Um, but ultimately, what produces really a changed perspective and a different paradigm is experience. Yeah. And so you literally have to invite someone. Proximity, in. as you said It's before. proximity, yeah. yep. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great one. We, you know, meet one of those people. Yeah, it's one of the things I told him is, if you can ever say that term, those people, and you have people that are those people in your life, I think you need to examine that with God right there. Um, because I think we miss the story of Jesus sitting with the Samaritan woman at the well. How how radical a moment that was. That, And I, I try to think, What's the equivalent of that moment where Jesus on earth in the flesh today? Would he be sitting with an illegal immigrant? Would he be sitting with an abortion rights advocate? Would he be sitting with a, a person of color, you name, a gang member? He would sit with the people that the good people of Fresno would think not worth sitting with and hey, would, would ruin his reputation to sit with them. 
Absolutely. And, and then the, you mentioned Samaritans. I mean, the, the other story that then I think uh, needs to be you know, bolted onto that as part of a, a trajectory or a journey for an individual, right, who may be wanting to truly answer this question that you're, that you're raising um, is then the story of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. right? So, so then you have to ask, you know, and, and why do you care? Like, why would you care? Why should you care? Why might you care? The Samaritan that's walking down that bloody path um, and stumbles on what we understand, though it's not explicit, is is a Jewish man that has been robbed and beaten and left for dead. Um, the Samaritan man had to answer that question: Why do I care? Yeah. And the the difficulty, the extreme difficulty in answering that question is: I don't think there's any reason for that Samaritan man to care. I don't, mm. except one. And it is, it is that he is human at his core, yeah. in the same way that the Samaritan is human at his core, that they are both made in the image of God. And that is something very deep and not tangible. It is not about money. It is not about politics. It is not about ideology. It is not even about agreeing generally at some of the more cursory theological issues it is at its core a much deeper response that says the reason I care and I have no better answer than this is that the reason I am going to help him is because he's human. Yeah. And and if we are going to try and come to an agreement around politics or cursory theological issues or around ideology or anything else that explains why we should be engaged, we're probably not going to get there. Yeah. Uh, and what Jesus is doing in that story is making the hero out of the people that they hate. And they feel justified in their religious beliefs to hate. And that that parable, that story that he told is in response to him giving two commands. Two commands are you love God and you love your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is that person that you think is not worthy of God's love. And so as a Christian, as a human, we should care if humans are hurting. As a Christian, we're commanded and told very explicitly that if you don't love that person you don't think worthy of God's love, or you don't think worthy of your finances or, or whatever help you can give, then, you, then you're not doing very good on command number one. Back to proximity, yeah. right? So, so this Samaritan, um, again, I'm using a little bit of a, a theological license here, but um, surely, surely, one, we know closed the proximity gap. Two, and surely got blood on his clothes. Yeah. You know, smelled of a man that had been laid, that was laying there and was beaten. Um, a man that would not have done, if, if the roles were reversed, would probably not have stopped. And presumably, yeah. yeah. And, and so I guess the question is, right, um, for us all is, have I gotten close enough to get blood on my clothes? I don't know. I mean, but that's the question that ultimately leads us to, I think, the kind of engagement that really does heal. Yeah. Really does heal. And the opposite side of that coin then, to go from, okay, God commands you to do this. For me, the joy of this is meeting people who are different than me, of, of getting a perspective of life that doesn't match mine, of my kids knowing people that are different than all the people around us. I think it's just a more full life that way. Absolutely. I mean, culture is beautiful. Yeah. Culture is an expression of God. 
right? And so we get to see the the diversity uh, in God Himself, yeah. uh, and expressed through culture. And it is beautiful, and it is rich, and it makes us all learners, and it levels the playing field. Um, just this past uh, weekend, we had a member of our church. So let me just back up. About two weeks ago, a member of our church passed away uh, pretty suddenly and and very sadly. Mm. Uh, two families in our church are the godparents to uh, this woman's uh, and her uh, now widow's um, three children. And so we have two sets of godparents. We have a, a, a husband who has been widowed very suddenly, um, in his wife's passing. One of the the sets of godparents worked with the other set of godparents, and one of the realities that we face is we face when you don't have a stable job, when you don't really have many tangible assets, is that you also do not benefit from life insurance policies that come with a lot of um, connections in this world, right? Yeah. So if you have an ongoing stable job, you often have a life insurance policy that comes with you as a benefit. Uh, if you have a bank account, that you know, you have a life insurance policy often that's connected to that account. And so uh, they didn't have life insurance policy. So these godparents hosted a fundraiser uh, on our street, and we uh, rallied two other members of the church to cook in someone's front yard, and so they began to cook. I'm sure it was a uh, health code violation, um, <laughs> but uh, we trust each other, and yeah. we eat each other's homes all the time, so why wouldn't we do it now? And so we were cooking tacos and, and making taco plates and, and selling, and, and, and the entire neighborhood, it felt like. I mean, it felt like over 100 people had come through from just the neighborhood and from the church as well and just bought tacos and raised $2,000. But that's a neighborhood response, right? And it's and and it is the the diversity uh, of that group of people that came through to rally around a family was remarkable, but that kind of rich community isn't experienced um, you know in in just one culture alone. I mean, it is it is remarkable what happens when people begin to see one another as people and uh, and when we do close the proximity of those relationships to begin to respond in a way that truly is healing. Um, it, the potential for that is the kingdom. We'll get back to our conversation with Phil in just a moment, but I want to tell you a couple of things coming up in the nonpartisan evangelical community that you're going to want to be a part of. Uh, it's our new audiobook coming out and our new discussion group for millennials. First, the audiobook. A lot of you know about my novel, Joseph Comes to Town, with the subtitle, When the Religious Right Becomes Religiously Wrong. It's a look at what would Jesus say about the evangelical partisan political church if he were on earth today. And you may have read that book or not, but now it's coming out on audio and you can hear it by joining our nonpartisan evangelical Patreon page. That's it's at patreon.com slash NPE podcast. That's nonpartisan evangelical NPE podcast on Patreon. And if you sign up, 
you'll receive a little bit of the book that's coming out in serial form, about three chapters every couple of weeks or so, and also my commentary on sort of what I was thinking as I wrote it, the, the underpinnings I see in the Bible and in culture of it, and just a way to get deeper insight into the book. So sign up on our Patreon page. You can go to my website, npepodcast.com, and click on Partner With Us, and that'll show you how to get to the Patreon page. And the other thing that has me really excited, one of my goals for the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast is to talk to millennials and Gen Zers and say, hey, if you don't go along with the political thought of the evangelical church, that doesn't mean you have to reject Christianity or God or the Bible outright, that there actually is another way to see Christianity and scripture and all those things than just the way maybe their grandparents walked it out. And I want to have that conversation with millennials. It's our group. We're calling an old pastor having new conversations. And if you go to my website at npepodcast.com, it'll tell you how to sign up for the group. That's npepodcast.com, the millennials group, an old pastor with new conversations. So if you're a millennial or if you know someone that is and is interested in discussing religion and politics, those two issues that we never discuss Go to the website, npepodcast.com, to sign up. So excited to have the audiobook coming out. So excited to be sitting down with millennials and talking about the important issues of culture that really mean a lot to them and say, hey, God doesn't expect you to walk out your religious faith the way your grandparents did, perhaps. And let's have that conversation. All right. Hope you're enjoying the conversation we're having here with Phil Sky. He's an amazing guy. And we're talking race. We're talking war. And how do Christians look at these things? So back to Phil Sky and our podcast on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. Talking with Phil Sky, he's the co-pastor of On Ramps Community Church here in Fresno, where we record the podcast and uh, activist in neighborhood revitalization in our our city. and And as we're sitting here, we're hearing the jets go over my house, as happens quite often over the studio here. And it reminds us, uh, as we're recording today, that we're in sort of an interesting situation where the United States has just killed a military leader from Iran, and we find ourselves sort of hanging on the precipice of of war, maybe. We've been at war nonstop since 2001, so it's not something new for us, but maybe an ever-deepening time when we thought maybe we were kind of unwinding ourselves from war in the Middle East. and. So I think I love your perspective as a pastor and somebody who knows the Bible well. And, and when we look at the New Testament, I've been asking people as I as, as we've sort of we reveled in the, the killing of Osama bin Laden under the administration of President Obama. And now as we've killed this man, Soleimani, uh, over the past few days, a lot of people are reveling in that. A lot of my Christian friends are like, yeah, there's our president going and defending us. And it's just made me a little bit uncomfortable. As you look at all these events and kind of our history of war and everything, what what, is, what do you see as a as a New Testament uh, covenant preacher? How do you see all this stuff? <laughs> That's a big question, Paul. <laughs> oh my goodness! I mean, I want know, a simple answer in the next twelve right. seconds. <laughs> you know, I I um so uh, theologically, where where I start is I'm always pointing people. Uh, to Jesus, yeah. okay? And I'm saying, listen, if you're going to read the Bible, you need to read it through the lens of the cross, okay? 
And so you, you've got to go uh, backward in, you know, back your way into the Old Testament. You really want to understand who God is. And that's the core question, really, of Scripture, right, is who is God? Okay. Um, and we see throughout the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament, we see uh, a divergence of ideas about who God is. And so people begin to uh, think that God wants these sacrifices, right? And so, I mean, that's how you gain the favor of the gods, if you will. And so, um, ultimately, God reveals himself fully and completely in Jesus. And so he's, oh, that's who God is. Mm-hmm. That is who God is. And, and God is, uh, Scripture reveals, is love. We find love embodied and exemplified in Jesus to the degree, it's not just any kind of love or, or your, even your definition of love, it is a self-sacrificial, uh, self-giving love that ultimately will give itself until death um, and uh, on the cross. And so here we look at Jesus and we find this loving God who, the, who has made us in his loving image and when there is conflict, where conflict is present, where there is a divide or a chasm in our relationship, uh, one to the other, again, we were talking earlier about some responses, but ultimately, uh, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, here's sort of the path. Um, you know, you are going to go to that person and you're going to seek reconciliation. Uh, if that is not effective, if that is not um, comfortable, then you have the option of um, you know, bringing others with you and, and so on and so on. And so when you think about it and you apply that to national politics, it's very complex and which I know so little about, but I am a pastor. And so when I look at national politics, I am just saying, well, what is the relationship between the United States and Iran, for example, mm-hmm. in this instance? And in what ways have we sought to be reconciled to them? People would point to our diplomatic efforts, and they would say, well, we've tried to have this conversation, we've tried to have that conversation. And ultimately, I would argue that those conversations have broken down, those negotiations have broken down, Mm -hmm. because the negotiations have always been um, held in a way that was protecting our self-interest as a nation. That's a tough point for Americans. So, of course, we should be protecting our own self-interest, right? Right. but theologically, we just talked about this uh, Samaritan man who seems to not at all protect his self-interest, and he is the model that Jesus lifts up. So now, someone would jump in right there and say, well, what are you saying, Phil? Are you saying that you know we should give up everything and everyone should move into our country and we should have open borders and all that kind of stuff, right? So you, you, you're taking this pretty far, but, right. but let's just take one step at a time and say that in our diplomatic relations with Iran, um, have we ever sought their benefit? Because the rest of the world, for the most part, sees America as Babylon, we're Babylon in the story, and I know we never see our sin. No, we, of when, we, not. when we read, when we read uh, the Old Testament, we do not see ourselves as Babylon in the story, but they see us as Babylon. Yeah. We are the rich, dominant nation, world power, um, and that is something that we, I think, do accept. We say we are the wealthiest nation in the world, yeah. and we have the greatest military in the world. So. So I, all of that to say that that reveling in another in the murder of another country's leader, though that other leader has clearly done and has been well documented, very evil things, um, 
it doesn't make the way in which we continue to relate to other countries in such a self-interested way that it, that keeps them poor, that exploits their labor and their land, doesn't make that any less evil. So we have to explore then, how do we then relate to others, Matthew 18, in a way that can really... Uh, level the playing field, and I and that's not expedient. That's not fast. Mm. That's not doesn't work out really well in a in a four year presidential term. Um, and I think that's where we're a little bit. Um, I think that's that's where we have been uh, a little stuck as a nation is that yeah. we we've bought into a political diplomatic relationship that probably is not very kingdom. And I think we believe our military can make things right, even though our, our history doesn't seem to prove that. But I, I do want to step back a little bit to what you were saying of seeing things through the cross. I think that's a good way to look at it. And and so we're talking about a way to view sort of war and things like that. And and so what I hear you saying in that, and you, you correct me or, or tell me, is when we read about war in the Old Testament, which I would say that's an old covenant, that was an old agreement of God saying, this is how I'm going to operate with humanity out of a, a covenant that was understandable to the people of the time, which said, your enemies are my enemies. That's how it, that's how it worked. That's how families work together. And so when God was saying in the Old Testament, yes, go wipe out that people, kill every man, woman, child, and beast, that then we have to say, but then how did Jesus project the heart of God toward that? And can we then say that God is pleased if we go wipe out a, a people group and commit genocide over people. Is is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. In other words, you know, God consistently throughout all of Scripture is uh, is telling us to go do things that, that ultimately it will be reveal, revealed to us that, that our ways are uh, very uh, short-sighted. Yeah. And so he'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, matter of fact, um, you know, Abraham, why don't you bring your son up to the top of the mountain, right? I mean, like, you know, yeah, sure, absolutely. You want to sacrifice him because you want my blessing, you know, uh, on this year's harvest? Like, you know, please bring him up. I will gladly accept your sacrifice. But then he was always like, no, I was never after hmm. your son's life. I don't want your son's life. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so so through Jesus, we you know through the cross, we look at really who God reveals Himself to be, and we find that that God uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you know, was constantly teaching us and helping us to see that 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 war was never uh, an answer, and that ultimately, and I know this sounds very idealistic, it sounds very Pollyanna, but I believe it, Paul, and that is that that love is the answer. And so how does that play out in national politics? Well, it's going to take an entirely different approach to our relationship uh, to neighboring countries uh, to explore that very idea. And honestly, since the very founding of this country, we've never explored it. Right. So people want to discount it, but we've actually never explored it no, in America. Right. I think it's a good point. And, and ultimately, let's give it a chance and see what would happen. And I know it, it sounds so logical to say, hey, we have to defend our interests. Um, but I think some of it goes back to how we view people. And, and if we think Middle Easterners are just inherently evil or Muslims are inherently evil, A, I don't think you can back that up with scripture. Um, and, and B, it's just not inherently the truth. And, and some of it may, we, we have to own our history. 
And, and we don't have a great history in the Middle East. We've, we've done some bad things for our own self-interest. And maybe that somehow plays into why they don't like us very much over there. Yeah, the story of the Good Samaritan changes entirely if we apply our current lens on this killing to it, right? Really, the Samaritan should have reveled when he saw the Jewish man laying there beaten and robbed and was going to die. He should have been like, this is awesome. Finally, justice has come, you know? Uh, maybe even gone over there and kicked him a couple times, right? And then kept walking. I mean, yeah. that that's what we, in essence, but that's not, it's not the parable that Jesus tells. He never tells that story. Yeah. The story that Jesus tells is the Samaritan goes over there and heals him. I mean, so it's it's uh, we really have to explore this and use, as Walter Brueggemann would say, you know, our prophetic imaginations here hmm. to explore what does the kingdom on earth look like, not just in our nation, but in our world. For God so actually loved not just the United States, but he actually loved the whole world. So His kingdom is to come on, not just a, uh, you know a particular hemisphere, but He's supposed to come. It's supposed to come on the entire earth, hmm. and if we who have much, are to explore that as many believe a nation, you know, founded and uh, under God, indivisible with life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is, 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 our, is, our, is our God-given right. We need to explore that in a way that has international impacts. Mm. And I think when the soldiers came to take Jesus away, to take him to an unjust trial and ultimately an unjust execution. Uh, Peter jumps up and cuts off a guy's ear, and Jesus says, now put that thing away, because if you live by the sword, you're going to die by it. That's right. And, uh, And I think that's a real telling thing of him saying, hey, the more powerful thing is for me to just submit to the process and and serve and go through it, and that's going to be world-changing much more than you trying to kill a few of these guys before we go down. Yeah, and, and I recognize the complexity of our um, of our political system, right? I mean, how do you have a sustained diplomatic effort that actually seeks, you know, a just world where you don't have haves and have nots when people are elected on a regular basis, and you know the the you know sort of desire or will shifts so radically. I mean, it's, you know, our, our system is a good one. It's an incredible one. It is unique throughout the world, but it also has its limitations. Yeah. I think it's one thing I really want American Christians to examine in themselves is, does God revel in the death of these men? Because I, 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 can, I can get myself to a place where God says, okay, I don't like where you are, but yes, Osama bin Laden is planning to do terrible things. He's taking people into uh, sort of a false self-sacrifice, and I want to protect them from that. And so I could see God even saying, yes, President Obama and military, I, I bless you guys to go carry out this action. But I'm not going to be joyful that this person is killed. And I think Christians really do need to examine our hearts of in the night Osama bin Laden was killed, you know, the streets of Washington, D.C. were filled with people chanting USA. And I just think we need to say that's not us as a people. Yeah, we can say, Mr. President, you did what was right in the circumstances and we bless you in that, but we're not going to rejoice over the killing of humanity. You know, um, killing our enemies, we just have got to get away from that being the only answer. Yeah. 
right? I mean, and it and it funnels down. I mean, you're 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 a father of two, you know, children. I, you know, Reese and I have two uh, children, and and if every time, and I, you know, I've never asked you this question, but I'm confident that you and Ashley have never said to your kids, "Hey, um, if you hear that someone is going to hurt you, you should kill them." Yeah. I mean, you know, like that's <laughs> no. not. Like we've never said that to our girls, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but it's it's excusable as a nation, and because proximity is what it is, right? We we are not close at all. Uh, we have no relational tie to Iran. That the, the, I mean, the general population in this country, including myself, I don't have any relationships with Iranians. Um, I really don't. Not with people who live in Iran. And so, when there is no proximity, it is much easier to view someone as other than you. Yeah. Um, it's what we would call the otherization of people, right? So, other than you. And so, then it's easy to you know paint a picture of them, to tell a particular story, um, self justify you know your actions. But but killing's got to stop being the answer. Yeah. And self sacrifice being sort of a Christian principle that Jesus showed us, that he didn't come to to be served, but to serve. And if that's the guy we're following, then that should be sort of our role too, and being willing to lay down our weapons to create proximity and opportunity, that ought to be the very core of who we are. I so appreciate that, Paul, because I mean that—that's the point here, isn't it? I mean, this is this is the nonpartisan evangelical, and and the message of Jesus that you and I are just sort of you know talking about here. Um, I haven't heard a Democrat or a Republican espouse this um, approach, yeah. right? It's not Democratic. It's not. It's not Republican. This is this is the message of Jesus, and as followers of Jesus, this needs to be something that we have to explore much further. And I think that we've explored it. I guess my point earlier is that we have done some good work on this as parents, I think. But we need to be able to apply the same thing we're teaching our children to our cities, to our states. I mean, our states are constantly battling each other. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then internationally. Um, I don't think we've done the hard work on that. That could change a whole lot of stuff, couldn't it? It absolutely could. I think it changes everything, actually. <laughs> I think Jesus changes everything. And that ought to be the goal, and I, I think you're right. I, I think if we start looking at, all right, God, your goal really is to keep America intact. I, I had somebody the other day tell me, hey, the, the American military is the best peacekeeping force in the world. Uh, when that's our vision of what it looks like, uh, from God's perspective, then I think we can get ourselves into some big messes, i.e. Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, uh, when we start to say, hey, maybe God has a plan for those guys too, whoever those guys are. Right. And maybe we need to get out of the way and let God's plan uh, happen. And if that's happening, then we're all going to get along a lot better and, and it'll make a whole lot of things better. Um, then we can really see things change. It's good. I, you know, so often I enter these conversations, you started, we started this, you know, sort of, um, you know, thought here with the question of, you know, you have these conversations with people and, and they ask you, you know, how do you approach this? And, and, and I think that, again, a theological imagination really has to be the beginning. We, we I like that term. That's good. We always start, Paul, with praxis. And then we back our way into our theology, which is what led to idolatry in the very beginning, yeah. right? In the Old Testament, it's like, <laughs> this is what I want to do. This is what I want to have happen. So let me build a theology that sort of hopefully 
predicts that that's going to occur if I offer this sacrifice or that sacrifice. But but it's, it's never that way. It's never practice dictates theology. Theology needs to always dictate our praxis. And um, you know, in, in and so for us to come back to this message of Jesus, for us to think about you know how it is that we lead to. Um, you know, a, a preferred future for our cities and for our nation and for our world really needs to start with our theology. And so when someone says to you that the United States military is the best or greatest peacekeeping, you know, sort of force uh, in our nation, and in our world, I would stop and I'd say, okay, well, define peace for me, <laughs> like biblically define peace for me. Yeah. And, and and if we really if we're going to do any work biblically on the word peace, we're going to know. And you've said this many times. I've heard you say it. You know, peace is not the absence of conflict. Right. It's not the absence of war. And that's what that person meant to you. Meant right. when they said that. Right. They meant they stop us from they stop people from dying. And I'd say, man, that's a good thing. Let me be clear about that. I am all for that, and God's for that. Yeah. Um. But peace is more than that. And so let's make sure that we know what we're talking about, because if we do, then we can aspire as a nation to something even greater than just few, as few Americans as possible dying. Mm. That's not a vision. That's survival. Yeah. And God gives us a vision, and he calls it his kingdom. And the more work we do on that, uh, the greater vision we will have for our neighborhoods, our cities, and our world. Wow. I'll leave it at that. That's a great word. We'll finish with that. Thanks so much. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. All right. We'll have you on again. That's Phil Skye, co-pastor of On Ramps here in Fresno and uh, all around great guy. Thanks, Paul. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this amazing discussion with Phil Skye talking about race and war and how we look at these things from a biblical perspective. Really excited to get to talk to Phil about this today. Also, don't forget, go to the website, npepodcast.com. You can hit that Partner With Us button, sign up on our Patreon page, and that'll give you access to the audiobook of Joseph Comes to Town coming out this month. And also, you can find out how to get uh, be a part of uh, our Millennials group, Old Pastor New Conversations, that says, Hey, Millennials, you don't have to walk out your faith the way maybe you saw your grandparents do it. Let's have that discussion. NPEpodcast.com is the website. I want you to sign up. Also get on our insiders list that tells you when new podcasts are coming out, new blogs, and all the new things happening in the NPE community. I appreciate you being here. We will talk to you again soon on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at NPEpodcast.com. Podcast.com.